Will you bow your heads and pray with me as we turn our attention to God's word now? Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you. Your word says that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Lord, we don't come this morning um, looking for any other word than yours. And so we ask and pray that you would speak to us today by your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask for this that you would build up your church, and that you'd glorify yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, this morning, we're going to have a serious sermon, but hopefully, I'm hoping and praying that this will be an encouragement to you all as well at the same time. On July 1st, the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir put out a song we're coming for your children, and I want to read to you at the front end of the sermon a few lines from this song. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children, happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you'll barely notice it. We're coming for your children, we'll convert your children and make an ally of you yet, will make an ally of you yet. You can go online and listen to the full song and find the lyrics if, if you'd like. Um, they are not hiding their goal. Right there in plain sight for us. The song uh, talks about um, teaching kids to be uh, just, tolerant, and not to hate. What that means is, if you disagree with their lifestyle, you are unjust, intolerant, and hateful. Now set aside for just a moment that that is their view of Christians, because that is the position of Scripture. They want to establish their worldview. They want full acceptance, nothing less. If you're not gay, then they want you to be an ally, someone who supports and stands up for homosexuality. Look, someone is going to disciple your children. It better be you. And why aren't we so bold at making disciples of Jesus Christ? Why don't we have such zeal to get our message out? We've got the greatest news ever, and we're so timid. How do Christians respond in a culture that is increasingly hostile to their faith? That is this larger question that we're seeking to answer as we go through the book of 1 Peter as a church. We're trying to learn from Peter. Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. How do we respond? Peter's answer is, be hopeful and holy. Peter writes to encourage and equip Christians suffering their faith, and he anchors them in their hope, and he calls them to holiness. Big picture, that's what the book is about. Like the Israelites who left Egypt and were exiles, we are to gird up our loins and leave behind our former way of life on our way to a far better future. 
So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. We're going to be picking up here and follow along as I read our text for today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this passage is is one of the places from 1 Peter where we get the, the tagline for our sermon series, Hopeful and Holy in a Hostile World. The message for us today is be hopeful and holy. That's what the church is called to do. The church is called to live hopeful and holy lives, confident in the Lord and devoted to the Lord. Confident and devoted to the Lord. And we're going to see three commands as we go through our text today. But before we jump in uh, to the first command, I, I want to... Uh, point out that Peter is calling believers to live a holy life based on what Christ has already done for them. The first word of our text is, therefore. It points us back to everything that we've just seen in verses 1 through 12. We can't leave that behind. In light of this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, we are to live a godly life. Disciples live a godly life. And so there is this, as is often Uh, talked about this connection between the indicative and the imperative, right? The indicative is, is what is true of you? What has Christ done for you as a believer? And the imperative, what does God command you to do? How does he command you to live? There's this connection. And the indicative comes before the imperative. You can't get the order switched. If you reverse the order, it leads you into moralism, works righteousness, and a works-based salvation. Grace leads us to obedience. Our obedience, our holiness, is a response to the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. It is a result of the grace and power at work in your life. We cannot get the order mixed up. At the same time, The indicative and imperative are inseparable. You cannot have all these true things in Jesus and not have Jesus as your Lord. You cannot have Christ as your Savior and not submit to Him as your Lord. So with that foundation, we are going to jump into these commands. So the first command, whoops, yeah, is to set your hope fully on grace, on future grace. And doing that means reshaping your thinking and living alertly and soberly. Look at verse 13. We see this in verse 13. Look there with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, disciples must get their minds ready for action. And Peter uses two word pictures here. First, he says, preparing your minds for action. It's literally girding up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Girding up the loins of your mind. And that day they wore robes. They would, they would gather up their robes 
tuck them between their legs, pull them back around front, and tie them in a knot or tuck them into their belt. The purpose was to free up their movement so they could run, they could work, they were ready for strenuous activity, like fighting, like battle. Girding up the loins then means get ready for action. It's like we say, roll up your sleeves. Or, or we say, get your game face on, right? You got to get your game face on. That's what this is like. It's an expression. And he's applying it specifically to their minds. You have to be mentally prepared. He, he's telling disciples who are facing opposition to their faith to be mentally prepared. Mentally prepared for what? For the vigorous and sustained effort to live your faith. Mentally prepared to follow Christ and to suffer for his sake, knowing that it's worth it. Now, this mindset of resolve and devotion, it doesn't happen automatically or by accident. It requires intentionality on our part. We're in a spiritual war, and a lot of this war is fought on the battleground of your mind. We need to be mentally prepared. It's a battle of truth and worldviews. You have to be mentally prepared so that you are not outwitted, not taken captive by human philosophy and empty deceit. And there is a lot of it going around. In persecution, it is crucial to control where you fix your thoughts so that you don't lose hope. This mental preparedness is why... For the first time as a church, we have started working together to memorize Scripture. Because we need to be anchored in God's truth if we're going to be mentally prepared. So Peter adds, and being sober-minded. This is another word picture used to describe our thinking. It's a figurative thing. We should be sober-minded, not (laughs) drunk-minded, if I can use the expression. Right? Too much alcohol causes mental sluggishness. Alcohol, it dulls your wits. It slows your thinking and your reaction time. It lowers your inhibitions and your restraints. It leads people to do things that they would never have done otherwise. So they become, without self-control, like a city without walls. Proverbs 25, 28. As Christians, we cannot afford to be dimwits. We need to have our spiritual wits about us. We need wisdom, discernment, restraint. We need our spiritual senses kept sharp and alert. Now, in the context of the first 12 verses, being sober-minded here means we should think rightly about both the good of this world and the troubles of this world so that we neither put our hope in the good nor despair when we face the troubles of this world. Now sadly, it's just too easy to become dull to the things of God because we are intoxicated with the things of this world. The attractions of this world capture our mind's attention and our heart's affection. When our spiritual senses are dulled, we lose sight of future grace. We lose sight of this great salvation that God has kept and prepared for us, and instead, we start seeking to fulfill our earthly desires. We look to the things of this world for our security, identity, 
happiness, and hope. Things that are seemingly good. Family, career, possessions, recreation, success, even politics, you name it. The sober-minded set their hope fully on the grace in Christ. That's what enables them to suffer persecution for their faith. It's like the Christians who are mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, who endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Listen now, listen. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. These Christians were willing to be publicly persecuted and they were willing to stand with other Christians who were being treated that way. Are we willing to do that? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Do do you see how hope in future grace, that hope is what enabled them to suffer for their faith in the present. Do do you see that? we got to know. We have to know. We've got to be prepared mentally, anchored in this hope. We have something far better and of infinite value. We've got to know that if we're going to be willing to suffer for our faith. Otherwise, otherwise, we will compromise Christ for something that we value more than him. We've got to know that what we have is of far better and infinite value if we're going to suffer for Jesus Christ, or we will compromise Christ to get something else that we value more. Would you trade $10, a $10 bill, for a penny? Why? Why not? That's the right answer. Why not? Yeah, it's worth more. Right? It's a thousand times more valuable than the penny. All right, but would you trade it for like a really shiny penny? No, right? Only someone who doesn't know the value of money would make that trade, correct? In the same way, we have got to know the value of what we possess in Jesus Christ. So Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I I can't go back and summarize all 12 of the first verses. I want to as a preacher, right? Because it's so crucial. Christ has come and, and he has died for our sins. And he has secured for us this eternal inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. And God is keeping that inheritance for us and keeping us for that inheritance. It's secure. There is fullness of joy that is waiting for us because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's all grace. It is all grace. You didn't earn it. You cannot earn it. God did it in Jesus. It's available for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That is our hope of future grace. Do you see? It's rock solid. Hope is trusting God for your future. It's not, 
like, oh, I, I hope it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's a confident expectation that we have. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you, on future grace. All of it, not some of it. Place no hope in the world. So how does that hope of future grace encourage us in the present, especially enabling us to suffer for Jesus? Or we could ask it this way. This is a little bit more blunt. What good is future hope for me right now in the present? Like, hey, that's great that I have this amazing inheritance waiting for me, Michael. What good is it to me now? Right? It's a good question. While the object of our hope is future, the experience of our hope is present. Hope is powerful now. So John Piper puts it this way. He says, hope keeps people from killing themselves now. Hope helps people get out of bed and go to work now. It liberates people from the selfishness of fear and greed now. It empowers love and risk-taking and sacrifice now. When our future is beautiful and sure, then our here and now will be sweet and fruitful. Embracing our hope in Christ is what fuels our passion, not to waste our lives, but to live it, to spend it for Him. Now the beauty, oh, the absolute beauty of future grace, this grace that we have is, is guaranteed in Christ, is that that is also the guarantee of every other grace that you are going to need from now until then. So Paul says, if God already gave you his son, how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? He's already given you the best thing he could ever possibly give you in his son, Jesus Christ. He, he reasons from the greater to the lesser. If he's given you Jesus, he's going to give you everything else you need from now until then. That means that Christ isn't just the guarantee of this future inheritance. He's the guarantee of every future grace that you need. That means the grace that you're going to need later today. The grace that you're going to need tomorrow and next week and next year and all the path from here until then. Christ is the guarantee of that for you. That hope empowers. Amen? So Peter wants to make sure that they're anchored in future grace, the hope of future grace, so that they're going to persevere faithfully. In the midst of persecution, we've got to be mentally prepared so that nothing dulls our spiritual readiness and faithfulness, that nothing distracts us from our hope in Jesus Christ. Now, the second command is don't be conformed to sinful ways. We see this in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Disciples mustn't be conformed to their, their sinful desires, but be holy as God is holy. Okay, it's, it's two commands, but it's two sides of the same coin. Peter starts off, he says, as obedient children, right? Children naturally imitate their parents. Layla is in the stage right now where she watches everything that we do and she does it. Everything. Now, sometimes it's comical. 
Sometimes it's super convicting, right? They watch our habits, our speech, our attitudes, our, our actions. And so we say things like, oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or like father, like son. It's a great reminder for us to set a godly example. Generally speaking, children become like their parents. Now, some more, some less, but there's always some family resemblance. In the same way, the true children of God will be like their heavenly father. Just like Jesus was like his father. It doesn't make any sense to talk about being a child of God if you have no likeness to your father in heaven. Like children, we want to be like him. So Peter says, first, don't be conformed any longer to the passions of your former ignorance. Christians, don't go on living the way that they did when they were ignorant of God and his ways. That's the ignorance that it's talking about here. When you were ignorant of God and his ways, don't go on living that way. Don't be ruled by ungodly, sinful desires. Don't be conformed to the sinful ways of this world. Don't be squeezed like clay into the sinful ways of this world. In pottery, there's a technique called press molding. Press molding. It's this process where the potter takes clay and he presses it into a mold in order to take on a certain shape. So you can see here, the first thing that they'll do is they'll, they'll roll it out, they'll, they'll make it flat, and then they start to press it into whatever mold that they're trying to make. It could be a plate, it could be a bowl. The point is, is that they, they press it in either by hand or with a machine, and when the clay is removed, it has the exact shape. It's an exact replica of the inside of that mold. Now, the temptation in persecution and often the purpose for opposition to our faith is to press us into the world's mold. So the temptation and persecution and often the purpose of opposition is to press us into the world's mold, to adopt their values and abandon biblical ones. Now, disciples have always faced the pressures to conform to the ways of the world, always. That's why we have these warnings in Scripture. You, you are not the first Christians in history to face the pressure to conform to the ways of the world. This is our lot as exiles. But we're being pressured more and more every day. Just think of this strong effort to indoctrinate children in the immoral sexual ethic of the LGBTQ and the cultural Marxism of critical theory, both of which are being pushed in schools K through 12. Teaching sexual perversion, the most vile curriculum to the youngest of kids. Teaching that that's normal. Those who want these things taught in government schools are press-molding our kids. Colleges are going woke and they're press-molding students. But it doesn't stop there. Companies like Coke and Raytheon and so many others are hiring diversity and inclusion officers who, who are coming with critical theory and they are forcing their employees to adopt this unbiblical worldview. The media, the academia, big business, big tech, they want control. They want to control 
the thought, the discourse, they want to marginalize dissent. Why? They're press molding us to conform to their worldview and their agenda for the culture. There's this soft totalitarianism that's rising in America. It's cancel culture, woke mob. It intimidates people into silence and compliance because if you don't comply, you can lose your business, your career, your reputation. But it's not just fear that keeps people silent. Sadly, it's also being intoxicated and unwilling to give up the comforts and pleasures of this world. The world is pressing in on Christians hard these days, and we must not conform to it. We cannot afford, as God's people, to go along to get along. We serve Christ, the Lord, above all. We don't seek to be fitting in. We don't seek to be accepted. We, we cannot conform to the ways of the world. Not even as a means of hearing, gaining a hearing for the gospel. Oftentimes, the, the, the reason is, is oh, I don't want to make waves. I, I don't want to take too strong. I don't want to do anything to hinder the gospel. The problem is, is that it always leads to compromise, either compromise of your faith or compromise of the gospel or both. We're exiles here. We've got to live like it. That means swimming upstream. So Peter reminds us as Christians that obeying God and holy living are radically different. They're often the exact opposite of the desires of non-Christians. His main aim here is that each individual Christian would resolve to live in the truth and not conform. Now, the fact that he commands Christians not to be conformed any longer to the passions of their former ignorance that clearly implies that there's remaining sin in us as Christians that we've got to deal with. True Christians still struggle with sin. Amen? But this command also implies that it is possible to overcome that sin and to live in victory in the power of the Holy Spirit. We live holy lives because the Holy Spirit lives in us. So the question would be, what sinful passion do you need to repent of today? What sinful passion do you need to repent of today and to replace that with holiness, obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now I realize that we can't sit here all day, but if you're thinking just now, I can't think of anything, it means you haven't thought long enough. That means you should come back to this question Later, let the Holy Spirit do some work and bring to your mind the area of growth. Somebody say amen. Third, third command, be holy in all your conduct as God is holy. With their hope set on future grace, disciples live obedient to the Lord. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Look there with me. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Rather than be conformed to the world, we're to be conformed to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Now, before we jump into this, 
I want to I draw a connection that we might miss and that's super important for us to make. What is the connection between hope and holiness? What's the connection there? And here I'm indebted again to John Piper, but this time this comes from his book, Future Grace. I'm paraphrasing him here. The power of what sin promises us is broken by the power of what God promises to be for us in Jesus. I'll say that again. The power of what sin promises us is broken by the power of what God promises to be for us in Jesus. Paraphrasing. That's how sin is defeated. Hope is this faith that embraces the promises of God as more satisfying than the promises of sin. Whatever it is that you think you're going to gain from this sin, whatever it is promising you, whatever joy, whatever hope, whatever security, whatever identity, whatever it is that this sin is promising to you, that's broken when you see that what God promises to be for you in Jesus Christ is so far superior. Sin is broken by a superior love a superior joy, a superior treasure in Jesus Christ. That's why sin is not, like, sanctification is never just, I've got to, I just can't do this, I've got to fight this sin, just reject it, reject That's a losing battle. You want victory over sin? Pursue Christ. We have to see that here to see how hope, our hope of future grace, everything that we need, that hope in future grace is what enables us to live holy lives. We have to see that connection. It's not just our willpower. It's this superior love and, and treasure that we have in Christ, the greatness of future grace. That's why it's critical to set your hope fully on future grace. We're, we're not just trying as Christians to look good on the outside. Uh, hopefully you've been Christian long enough to know, but maybe, maybe not. We want heart-level transformation. This is how. This is how. So that we would delight in God, delight in holiness. All right. Third command, but as he who called you is holy, be, all, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy. Uh, that's a call to action. Um, preparing your minds for... Okay, we, we work to memorize this verse, right? So I'm going to give you a, a second chance. Preparing your minds for... Action. 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 The Christian life is not passive. It is active. There are still ungodly desires that tempt us away from God. We do reject those desires, and because of the treasure of Christ, we choose to do good instead. We choose to pursue holiness. We separate ourselves from evil, and we live in a way that pleases God. We're to be holy as God is holy. To say that God is holy is to say that he is set apart from sin and devoted to his own honor. That's the sense in which the things in the Old Testament were holy set apart from ordinary or evil use, and to be used to glorify God. That means to be holy as God's people means that we're, we're not just uh, separated in a moral sense from evil, we're also dedicated to a life of 
righteousness, serving God for his glory. Peter says, be holy in all your conduct, not some, all your conduct. Jesus wants to transform every area of your life. In thought, in word, and deed. Now, I've been Christian long enough to know that sometimes you lose a little bit of steam as you get older in the faith. You start to get comfortable with where you're at. The Lord is not done with you yet, believer. He is going to continue to refine you until the day you die or he returns. Holiness will require sacrifice. The cultural currents are at flood stage right now, and we are paddling upstream. Just like this guy. I don't know how to say his name, but he's paddling upstream at the 1990 World Cup in Augsburg, Germany. I didn't even know that was a thing until last night when I was looking for a picture of someone paddling upstream. So I'm going to have to check into that a little bit more. But that's a dude paddling upstream. That's us right now. See, what the culture calls morally good is often the opposite of what Jesus says is morally good, and that puts us at odds irreconcilably with the culture. That is what invites their scorn and their opposition. That means being holy will require certain sacrifices. Christians might be limited, for example, in the progress of their careers. The day is fast approaching, and I think is already here, where Christians will not be welcome in certain professions. My Russian friends have told me more than once that to be a Christian in communist Russia was to be an outsider. And they lived through this. The communists warned people, if you're a Christian, you go to church, your kids aren't going to be allowed to go to university. You will not be given the promotion. You will be given the poorest paying jobs. Sometimes they were imprisoned and tortured and killed. Now they warned them about these things up front so that they would abandon their faith. And many of them did cave to that pressure. But some of them, some disciples refused to compromise their faith for worldly gain. Erwin Lutzer talks about this uh, in his book, The Church in Babylon, and he asks a piercing question that I want to share with you. He asks, a hundred years from now, which family made the best decision? Is it not those who refuse to be intimidated? Far better to live the truth in Christ and be persecuted than living a lie in order to be comfortable. And what good is it to gain the whole world and to forfeit your soul, Jesus asks. Again, this is why setting our hope on future grace is so powerful because it reminds us that following Jesus Christ is worth every sacrifice. I'm going to say that again. Hope in future grace is so important because that's what enables us to suffer for Jesus because we realize, we know that every sacrifice we make is worth it. We got to have strong convictions and teach our children 
to hold deep convictions as well. Teaching them to refuse to compromise their faith, resolving to obey God, even if that means getting a lower grade or losing a job or being passed over for a promotion or missing out on some other opportunity. Prepare to stand alone. Jonathan Edwards is famous for making a bunch of resolutions in the Christian life. His first resolution can be summed up, I'm paraphrasing him, resolution one, I will live for God my whole life no matter the cost. If no one else does, I still will. I'm going to live for God my whole life no matter the cost, and if nobody else does, I still will. That's the resolve that we need. And God is the standard of holiness. Look at verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We can't allow the culture to determine our values or morals for us. But that's exactly what's happening so frequently because young believers are not anchored in the truth. They're not mentally prepared, so the arguments sound really good. It's also happening because they want to fit in and be accepted. And they don't want to be a bad witness. So they end up adopting and conforming to the secular values that contradict God's character and God's truth. Holiness is giving up your self-rule and surrendering to Christ's rule. Over the past couple hundred years, this idea of truth and justice has been separated from God and his word. So modernism has given way to postmodernism. And in postmodernism, objective moral truth is denied. And increasingly in our day, objective truth, period, is being denied. And that is what has led us to the chaos of our culture. When you throw God and his word out the window, then every person is left to make up their own truth. It's not that morality disappears. Do you understand? Like, morality doesn't get thrown out the window. It just becomes man-made. And oftentimes, what man comes up with is exactly the opposite of what God has declared. So it's not like you throw God out and you get rid of morality. You just switch it. Autonomy rules. Autonomy is a word that's made up of two little Greek words, autos, self, and namos, law. People become a law unto themselves. Autonomy, this this radical autonomy that we're living in right now is that every person has the right to define themselves, to define their own concept of truth and meaning and morality in the world. That's what has led us to this chaos. But if everyone has the right to define that, their own concept of, of truth and existence and meaning, that creates a big problem. Because how do you order society that way? That inevitably leads either to chaos, anarchy, or control, authoritarianism, where might makes right. A just society only exists where there's a transcendent, objective moral standard that exists outside of human opinion. And that applies to everyone, even the people in power. Without that standard, truth and justice are just arbitrary. They're ever-changing. So where do we find that transcendent, objective, moral standard? In God. In God, who is himself good and righteous and holy. God is the moral standard. He determines what is good and right for all people, in all places, in all times. 
And because God doesn't change, his standards don't change. That is why I'm saying at the core, holiness is giving up self-rule and surrendering to Christ's rule as Lord over your life. That's how we're to conduct ourselves in a post-Christian nation that's dominated by a secular worldview. Now, that might seem like a strange strategy. We're going to see more of what that holiness entails as we go through this book. Today, we're just getting the principle, be hopeful and holy in a hostile world. The church is called to live hopeful and holy lives, confident in the Lord and devoted to the Lord. And remember, I'll remind us one more time, God's commands are done by God's grace. We live holy lives because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for the promise of Isaiah that we are going to see the glory of the Lord. And we pray that you would strengthen us in hope. We pray that you would give us courage to be strong and fear not because you will come with recompense and salvation. We thank you for redeeming us and calling us to the way of holiness. And, oh Lord, we long for the day when we come into your presence with singing and everlasting joy will be on our heads and we'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away from us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set our hope fully on this future grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us not to conform to the sinful ways of this world, but be holy as you are holy. God, we pray that you would make us hopeful and holy. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.